morning. Our scripture for today is Genesis 49. That's page 42, if you have a pew Bible like this one. Genesis 49, 1 through 27. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be it not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell in the shores of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be in Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely, yet his bow remains unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you by the Almighty who will bless you of blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him that was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. This is the word of the Lord. I'll ask you to take your Bibles again and uh, open them up in case they've fallen closed. I want you to 
turn once again to Genesis chapter 49. And you can see here, maybe you're already starting to see some white space. You can see that we're very nearly finished our journey through the book of Genesis. And we're tracking right along with Jacob, who is very nearly finished his earthly sojourn. At the ripe old age of 147, he's almost ready to be, as he would put it, gathered to his people, gathered to his fathers. But there's still a very important um, matter to attend to. Namely, he needs to bless his sons. We saw at the beginning of that process last week as uh, Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons as his own and blessed them and he gave them a share in the inheritance. And now it's time for the rest of the sons to receive their respective blessings. So in verse 1, Jacob, on his deathbed, calls his sons to gather around him to share this very special moment, to, to hear his final words. And I want you to just pause just for a moment to consider how special even that is. I don't know if you've had the pleasure of gathering with your family around the deathbed of a loved one who is conscious and cogent and is able to speak but it is a beautiful thing. In, a, in this fallen world, in this cursed world, it's a very rare thing, I think, to have that circumstance. Uh, last century, an American-born woman, uh, Nancy Astor, who was also, she lived most of her li life in Britain, and she was the first woman uh, member of the British Parliament. Um, she on her deathbed, awoke momentarily to see herself surrounded by members of her family. And she asked, am I dying or is it my birthday? And uh, it turns out she was dying. And it turns out that those were her last words. But what a special thing to be surrounded by family. And then when Harriet Tubman passed away in 1913, she gathered her family around her to, to sing. And her last words ended up being, swing low, sweet chariot. And I don't suppose that I will ever forget that brutal and beautiful day that my family went to see Christina Kranz before she passed. I'll never forget how we uh, wept and prayed and even laughed and how she spoke words of blessing and encouragement over each of us. So what, what's happening here in chapter 49 is incredibly special, just to begin with. Right off the bat, before we've even gotten into the content of the words. And what, what makes it even more profound is that Jacob, these words that he speaks over his sons, they are poetic and they are prophetic. As God's man... Who, as the person upon whom are, you know, all of these very precious promises that God has given, um, these, these are abiding on Jacob. And Jacob now, as he's nearing the end of his life, is passing these promises on to the next generation. So these words, understand, are not just well wishes, okay? They are declarations 
of what God has designed, not just for the present, but for the future. So Jacob says to his sons, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will happen to you in days to come. That phrase there, days to come, it, it literally means in the last days. And it points us to events that, that lie in the future, even in the distant future. So these blessings are going to have us looking beyond these boys to the 12 tribes of Israel that will descend from them. And it has us looking beyond them all to the true Israel that will one day arrive on the scene. And I wanted to let you know that right off the bat so that you wouldn't start to tune out. Um, the possibilities for that, I realize, are, are high, even at the best of times. But when you look down and you see a, a passage that's structured this way, um, even, even just the structure of it, the indentation and the, uh, these sorts of things, it, it, it kind of makes us prone to tune out for some reason. We think that this is maybe just a, a really ancient piece of history. It's made personally for each of these 12 sons. It's a little bit poetic, and so it's very confusing. The potential is very great that we would just kind of tune out. And I don't want you to do that because I'm, I'm here to tell you that these are promises that are for you, ultimately, if you are in Christ. This is not some obscure scene from some ancient family that has absolutely no relevance to you. These, these people are the conduits and custodians of the very great and precious promises that have come down to you. This is the Messiah's family. This is your family if you are in Christ. And so in the words of verse 2, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Let's listen and learn from these blessings, and we'll do so under four main headings. If the time allows us this morning, we'll consider four S's, four S's that I will give to you in turn as they relate to these blessings. And first, let's consider the blessing and sin. The blessing and sin. This has us focusing in on verses 3 to 7. So, front and center, Reuben, you're the firstborn. By rights, you know, you should have the preeminent blessing. Let's see how, let's see how that plays out. Jacob begins, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. And we think, wow, these are very nice things for a father to say about his oldest son. These are, these are very special. And this is setting up quite nicely for a a strong blessing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's heading on a really great trajectory where it's going to just land in a burst of blessing. 
a, a position of preeminence, perhaps? Let's, let's listen and find out. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. <laughs> Ouch. That, that's not exactly what, what we were expecting. That's certainly not what Reuben was expecting. And he's probably wondering why. Like, this is, where's this coming from? It's seemingly coming out of no, from nowhere. And if, he, if he's wondering why, he doesn't have to wonder very long because the reason for this anti-blessing is given in the very next line. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And as, as Jacob is recalling this wicked act, you can tell that he's repulsed by it all over again. He's, he's, he's just disgusted with the audacity of it, with the sheer ugliness of it. And at the end of verse 4, four look there, you can see that he kind of he breaks away from addressing Reuben in the first person, and he breaks out into this exclamation about Reuben in the third person. He went up to my couch. Can you believe it? The, the heinous act that Jacob has in mind takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, where we discover that after the death of Rachel, Reuben, it says, went up and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And per, perhaps you, you remember being confused at the time by Jacob's lack of response. I mean, this is a heinous sin to commit just in the first place, but so disrespectful of your father. And, and you remember, I'm sure, at the time being so confused by Jacob's passivity, by his lack of response. It felt like a, a verse was missing there. You know, after, and Israel heard of it, you expect to read something like, and beat him senseless, or something. But there was none of that. The, it just moved on. And as the decades passed, no doubt Reuben grew increasingly comfortable and confident that he had gotten away with it that all was forgotten, certainly by now. Something like 40 years has passed. But now we know, and now he knows, that his father never forgot. The consequences, even though they've lagged behind, the consequences have now caught up with him, and they are devastating. Not just for him individually, but for the people that are going to come from him. Not only does he forfeit his rights as the firstborn, but the tribe of Reuben will never rise to any kind of significance within Israel. And eventually, they will just be kind of absorbed and they'll disappear. Simeon and Levi are up next. And unfortunately, they're in the same boat. Their future has been put in serious jeopardy because of the sin that they committed against Shechem. You remember that in response to, um, in revenge of the sin that had been committed against their sister Dinah? 
In their wrath and in their hot anger, Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the men of the city. And we get some more details about that here. It says they, they even made the animals of the city pay. Jacob says they hamstrung oxen. They were just vicious and violent and over the top in their, in their desire to see vengeance carried out. And this is, this is all because of their out-of-control, burning, raging anger. So Joseph, Jacob here curses their anger and their wrath. He wants no part of it. And neither will Simeon and Levi have any proper part of Israel. According to the end of verse 7, what the future holds in store for their tribes is division and scattering. Maybe you're wondering, what on earth is going on here? Wasn't this supposed to be a special moment around Jacob's deathbed? Isn't the heading in your Bibles and the title of this sermon, isn't it Jacob blesses his sons? How come... All that we've heard so far is the opposite of that, anti-blessing. How come there's even cursing? And I can answer that question with one word, and that word is sin. You can't expect to be blessed by God if you are harboring sin in your life. And, and please, don't be deceived by the case that it, it might be that long periods of time are kind of going by without you suffering any consequences. There, there could be a, a deceptive uh, element to the passing of time and the, the peace that you might be experiencing. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 24 says that the sins of some people are obvious and they they kind of fly ahead of them into judgment. The sins of others trail behind them. Either way, you need to know that God will not be mocked. Be sure that your sins will find you out, the Bible says. And as Reuben and Simeon and Levi are discovering, sin has consequences that reach far into the future. Their sins are going to have implications for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren for generations to come. The Bible is very clear that our sin, if it remains undealt with, has consequences that reach into the future, that reach all the way into eternity. Our sin will not have the last word. That's what it was starting to look like for Reuben, that his sin would have the last word. But that's not the case. The Lord will have the last word. And to pick up on what Jacob says in verse 6, the Lord will refuse to have his glory joined with the company of sinners. So for all of eternity, unrepentant sinners will suffer separation from God. And will endure his righteous wrath in a place called hell. This is, this is what the future holds for all those that will, will remain in sin. For the sexually immoral like Reuben. For murderers like Simeon and Levi. For people who are disobedient to their parents. Just in case you're thinking that 
you know, you've never committed any of those big sins. The, the Bible tells us that those who are, even those who are disobedient to their parents in an unrepentant way, should not expect any kind of inheritance. Not from their parents. We're, ta we're talking about inheritance in the kingdom of God. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of God for the unrighteous. Sin is incompatible with blessing. I guess that's the first point. When we're looking at the blessings, we have to consider sin in the blessings and notice that they are totally incompatible. And so let's turn to see a second thing, which is the blessing of scepter. The blessing of scepter. And as we come to verse 8, it's Judah's turn. And I think it's pretty easy to imagine what Judah is thinking as he steps forward and his father lays his hands on him and begins to speak. No doubt Judah is scared. You know, he's no dummy. He's seen the pattern. In dealing with Reuben, his dad brought up chapter 25 and on that basis denied him preeminence. In dealing with Simeon and Levi, his dad brought up chapter 34 and on that basis cursed their anger and their wrath and prophesied their scattering and their division. And now it's Judah's turn, and I'm imagining that he's shaking in his boots because he's also got a massive stain on his record. He's got his own chapter that Jacob could very easily bring up. Chapter 38, where Judah dealt dishonestly and disastrously, taking advantage of his daughter-in-law to suit his own appetites. So Judah, I'm sure, is bracing himself at this point. But none of that comes. It's all blessing. It's all beautiful. It's the most precious blessing of them all. And so we're wondering why. What's going on here? What about chapter 38? Judah's a sinner too. What makes him to differ? And there's a one-word answer to that question as well. And that answer is grace. What makes Judah different is certainly nothing in him. He, he's right there with his brothers scheming against Joseph in chapter 37. In fact, in some sense, he's, he's masterminding some of these moves against Joseph in chapter 37. We see him in chapter 38 giving full vent to his lust. This is Judah. He's no different from his brothers. The only difference is that the Lord has dealt graciously with him. And over the last number of chapters, we have strong evidence of, of the Lord's sanctifying work in him. Do, do you remember? We've, we've seen him rise to servant leadership in his family. He's even been willing to offer himself in the place of his family members, basically lay him, 
himself down, his life down, if need be, for the sake of other people. And this isn't because he's smarter or more spiritually sensitive than Reuben or Simeon or Levi. It's only because God has been exceedingly gracious with him and has done a powerful work in him. And I would just ask, like, isn't that your testimony as well? I think those of you who have unbelieving siblings can see this quite clearly because it's kind of set up to be a perfect case study. Think about you and your siblings. You're, you're all raised the same way. You have similar traits. You got into similar sins. What makes you to differ? Why are you walking with the Lord while your brother is still walking in the world? Why are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of, of Christ and, and your sister is still giving herself to every sin that comes down the pike? One word, grace. So there, there's no room for superiority here. There's only room for sympathy. There's only room for sacrificial love when it comes to unbelievers. There's only room for sharing the gospel promiscuously, as the Puritans would say. Now in verse 8, the blessing that Judah receives is the reality that he will rise to a position of leadership in the family and in the nation. Jacob speaks in poetic language, and the best kind of poetry has a particular form or structure. It does in, in English. It also does in Hebrew. And technically speaking, verse 8 has a what's called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure. It, it forms, um, it looks kind of like the structure does. It looks like the Greek letter chi. And so it's called a chiasm. But practically speaking, let me just put it in simple terms. Think of a sandwich, okay? I'm going to hold it up this way. Think of a sandwich. You've got a piece of bread, meat, and then another piece of bread. So the outsides are the same, and the inside is different. The inside is the meat. That's where all the action is. And the meat in verse 8, look there with me, the meat Hopefully you can see that structure already, but the meat in verse 8 is the idea of Judah's triumph over his enemies. Jacob says, his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies, and that's a submission hold. That's, a, that's the picture of total domination. And because of that, total domination over the enemies, so here are the, here are the pieces of bread around that thought, his brothers will praise him. His brothers will bow down to him. And that's reminiscent, isn't it, of what, was, what Joseph's dreams had predicted about him, that his brothers would bow down to him. And it seems like the Lord now is, through Jacob, is picking up on that theme and that thought and is saying now that that, Yes, that was true about Joseph, but this is now going to be true about Judah and about the people, the person that would come from him, that he would, that it's going to result in the praise and the bowing 
of the brothers. Now, another feature of poetry and prophecy is the, the frequent use of imagery and metaphor. So here, the idea of complete domination is best pictured, I think, in the image of a lion. So we read, Judah is a lion. And you, most of you who know me know me to be a person who does not like cats. And I, I, love, uh, I love people who love cats. I love Pat. I love Jenna. I'm proud of Kim and all the work that she does at Barn Cat Outreach. But you know me to be a, a, a guy that is not very fond of cats. I just want to correct that a little bit because it's not exactly true. I'm not a fan of domestic cats, but I do love big cats, okay? I love, here, here's the distinction. I love cats as God created them to be, not cats as man bred them to be. Do you understand the difference? I don't like emasculated cats. Now, you wonder, uh, let me just take a brief aside here. You wonder why house cats have such an attitude? I've got a theory, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think that they're just constantly walking around humiliated at what we've turned them into. And they're just perpetually ticked off at us. But I love big cats, okay? I, I grew up around a, a zoo called the African Lion Safari. And yes, it was in Canada, so I, I suppose it wasn't a truly authentic experience. I do love watching nature videos, though, with my family and um, those ones that are always narrated by David Attenborough. And they've got the late, the ones that are coming out these days are just phenomenal. They've got the latest in drone. Uh, camera technology, and you can watch lions on the hunt. And then you, after the kill, you know, after they've eaten their fill, they, they lie down to digest all of that meat, and they've got their, their paws all red, and their paws are resting on what, on the neck, or what was the neck of their prey. Their, their eyes are half closed, cl and, you know, they've got red all over their maws and it's a beautiful <laughs> and terrifying sight to behold. Can anything be more beautiful and ma majestic than a lion? At the same time, what could possibly be more terrifying? Who in their right mind would run up and rouse such a creature? C.S. Lewis has Susan, one of his characters, ask about Aslan, the lion, the great lion. And she, she asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the, he's the king, I tell you. Speaking of king, that's another image that Jacob uses in this blessing. 
in verse 10, there's talk of a scepter. And so, amazingly enough, this makes the second week in a row that I've said the word scepter in a sermon. I haven't used that word in decades, and now I'm using it every week. It's crazy. I said it last week in reference to wizards, which is what a recent article suggested that we call older people. And, well, I heard from you this week, and I understand your dis displeasure. That's, that's fine. We won't call you wizards, okay? <laughs> we'll call you the Wayland Wobblers, or... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. There, there's lots of other options, okay? The there's endless varieties if you don't like wizards. But this time, scepter is an image of kingly rule. It's the ruling staff that would rest between the feet of a king on his throne. And this blessing foretells that Judah is going to be a kingly line. It's going to be a royal line. And his descendants are going to rule down through the ages in perpetuity. According to verse 10, the scepter is not going to be taken from Judah before something happens. And that something or someone is a matter of debate, at least in terms of the wording. I'm not sure what, what translation that you're using. I'm not sure if your verse what your verse 10 reads, but it's probably one of these options. It, you, yours might say, until tribute comes to him. Your version might say, until Shiloh comes. It might say, until he comes to Shiloh. It might also say, until he comes to whom it belongs. And all of those are legitimate ways, in theory, to translate this Hebrew. Either, no matter what you have, I do hope that you have a Bible that has good footnotes that give you these options and let you know about the, the difficulty in translating this. The problem here is just how you render the original Hebrew. And for various reasons that I'm not going to get into now, I think the best way to render this is that the ruler's staff shall not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom that scepter truly belongs. I, uh, that's not just, you know, the, the juiciest uh, way to render it. I think that's the proper way to render it because you understand and hopefully you can see that this is this is not a reference to a, a thing or an event or a place even a place but a person. It's a hymn that is going to receive this scepter that comes down through the tribe of Judah. And it's it's this one to whom the scepter will truly belong in the most profound way. So right from the beginning, what I'm suggesting is that Jacob's blessing is pointing us to a time in the future where a great king will come in this line, the line of Judah. And this king will come as the lion of Judah. And this reign will be characterized by the complete subjugation of all enemies. And it's going to result in a time of peace and prosperity, not just a time, 
but an eternal state of peace and prosperity. And what I'm suggesting to you all the way through this is that this has us looking beyond Israel's ideal model king, which is King David. It's, this, this text certainly prophesies the rule and reign of King David, a man after God's own heart. But it also is having us look beyond David because there's one that's coming about whom even David call, says that he is Lord. He's his Lord. There's someone greater than David coming. Saul has killed his thousands. David his ten thousands. But this king that's coming is going to have his billions. And one reason to look beyond David is found at the end of verse 10. This line of Judah is going to have the obedience of the peoples. Plural. Okay, so we're not just talking about the king over Israel. We're talking about a king whose subjects are from every tongue and tribe and people and language and nation. It won't just be his brothers that are praising him and bowing down to him. This king will have every knee bowing and praising him. All the peoples will praise the one that's spoken of ultimately that will come in the line, line of Judah as a lion of Judah. And listen to the description of the peace and prosperity that will be ours when this king from Judah comes. Look at verse 11 and 12. For starters, this is a king who rides a donkey. Not only this, but he's going to hitch his donkey to a grapevine. And that, I don't know if this is probably lost on us a little bit, modern people, but you would never hitch your donkey to a grapevine. You understand grapes produce wine and and so they're extremely valuable you want to grow as many grapes as you can so that you can have as much wine as possible and donkeys if they're anywhere near grapes and vines are going to devour them you tether your donkey to a vine and you'll have you'll have like a whole vine disappear in the radius of that circle you, don't, you just don't do that unless you are fabulously wealthy, unless you're the type of person that's just doing this number, unless you have vines and wines in so much abundance that who cares if your donkey eats a bunch of it? You can use your vine as a hitching post in this scenario. And wine is as abundant as water. So that if you wanted to, you could, you could use wine as wash water. Do you see that in the text? I'm paraphrasing a little bit for the sake of time here, but you could put Merlot in your Maytag because it's just like nothing. And then we fast forward a few thousand years. Fast forward to a place called Cana, where there's a wedding taking, pl taking place. And this is so embarrassing for the host, but 
the wine runs out and the party's not over. This is, this is bad. We've got a shortage of wine. I don't, I don't know what the culprit was, if it was inflation or supply chain issues or whatever, or just poverty. But the worst thing imaginable has happened. There's no more wine. But here there's a, a lady that seems to believe that her son can do something about that problem. And this one, this son, after a little bit of convincing, he orders that they fill a bunch of water jugs. You know, the, the kind of jugs that you would maybe use for washing a bunch of clothes or whatever. And miraculously, this one is able to turn all of this water into an abundance of wine. Not just cheap wine, but really good wine. And this, this ought to be a signal to people in the early stages of Jesus' ministry that what we're dealing with here is not just some g- generic man from Nazareth. What we're dealing, who's on the scene now is, is, is and, and what this one is ushering in is a kingdom where wine is in abundance. And I remember hearing about such a kingdom when Jacob blessed Judah and spoke of such a time. And, and if, if you're wondering, if you're wondering if we're maybe stretching things a little bit in identifying Jesus Christ as this king who comes in the line of Judah, this king of kings, who will usher in uh, a, a, a period, an everlasting state of peace and prosperity, then we, we don't have to, we just have to look at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 5. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, there's clear ties to this, and then at the very end where John is given a glimpse into things that are kind of similar, things that will one day come in these last days. Revelation chapter 5, he's ushered into this scene, and it's a dire situation. It seems like there's a scroll that needs to be opened, and the call goes out. Is there anyone that can take this scroll and open its seals? And it looks like there's no one that can initially. Looks like, and, and, and you have to understand the imagery there in, in Revelation. This is, this is, the scroll is all of God's purposes for, for the world and for salvation and, and for uh, the, this eternal kingdom. And if there's no one that can open the seals and unleash this scroll so that these events can happen, then we are undone. So it's no wonder that John begins to weep loudly. He's weeping. Is there, is there anyone? What, what if there's no one that can, can do this? And then we read in verse 5, One of the elders said to me, John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And I could go on and read, and you'd discover that this lamb, who's also a lion, why is he a lamb looking as if he's been slain? Because he has been slain. And this is the reason why sinners like you and I can ever hope to enjoy the blessing of God for all of eternity is because this king has come and he has come not just as a lion, but he, he came as a lamb in order to be slaughtered, sacrificed in my place for my sin so that I might be saved and ransomed and healed and forgiven fully so that I might be adopted into this family, the family of God, so that I might have God as my father, and so that I might receive the inheritance of an eternal kingdom. That's why he's a lamb looking like he's been slain, but he's also a lion. And he comes in the lion of, lion of Judah as the lion of Judah to conquer all of our enemies and to usher in this glorious kingdom. Friends, this is your king. This is your Christ. We won't have uh, time today. We'll, we'll have to pick up the action uh, and, and look at a little bit more of this blessing a little bit later. But for now, I want you to just rest in the fact that these blessings are yours in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's, uh, let's glory in Christ, not just today, not just tonight when you come back, but let's glory in Christ the rest of our days and for all of eternity.